0: welcome to the Leadership Innovation Ventures and Entrepreneurship Podcast, also known as Live. I'm your co-host at Tenoso Bevoin, a community coordinator with the University Housing and Dining.
1: And I'm Brandon Jones, and I'm your co-host. I'm the Associate Director for Student Learning and Development. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everybody, to the Leadership Innovation Ventures and Entrepreneurship Podcast, also known as Live. And guess what? This is the very first time we're doing it live. So to everybody in the audience and everybody tuning in online, thank you so much. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Brandon Jones. I'm the Associate Director for Student Learning and Development in Housing and Dining. And I'm going to kick it over to my co-host.
0: Atenosa. Hey, y'all. It's Atenosa here. I'm the co-host of the live podcast. I'm a community coordinator with the University of Housing and Dining. And we are so excited to be here. It is another Black History Month episode. Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) Super excited. This is the second or third one? I guess the second, really. Yeah. Yeah. So we're excited uh, because, again, when we're doing this in person, uh, shout out to the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Studio for allowing us the opportunity to use this space. But more importantly, to be before you all on today, uh, we have a very special guest with us who was actually on episode 14 of our audio of the audio version of the podcast this time last year, Dr. Adrian Sebro. And so we decided to bring him back because One, uh, his work is just incredible and two, lots of things have happened uh, over the past year in the world of black sitcoms and streaming services and a bunch of different things and I thought, who better than Dr. Seabro to come and talk to our audience and really help us to just really unpack this really
2: cool conversation? So, first off, Dr. Seabro, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, come back from episode 14. I always wondering like when can I come back? I didn't want to know if you <laughs> want me back or not. But I'm glad y'all wanted me back. Oh, I'm listen, happy there, to be there. here.
1: There's always a spot on the microphone for you, Dr. Appreciate Cibro. you. Thank you. Before we dive into uh, all of our questions and everything that we've got to our online audience, if you've got questions or comments or feedback for uh, us on the panel, but specifically Dr. Sebro, please don't hesitate to drop those questions or comments uh, in the chat and we'll make sure that we uh, take a look at those. And if it's a question, we'll definitely try to get that answered during our time together today. Uh, But at this time, what I want is to give Dr. Sebro a chance to just kind of introduce himself and let let you all know a little bit about his background, his research and his areas of interest
2: and all the things that make this brother a cool brother to me that is. So, Dr. Seabro. <laughs> so, give some background, uh as said my name is Adrian Sebro. I'm an assistant professor of uh, media studies at uh, University of Texas at Austin, the Moody School of Radio Television and Film Department. And um, I teach a history of like black media in general, um, so film, television, digital media, uh, everything black. Uh, I teach that and really it's about you know, um, where we find ourselves as black people in the media and visually where we find ourselves. I always try to make my students reflect on that, how we see ourselves, uh, why we see ourselves this way and like, how, how you can work to see yourself in another way. Um, so coming from my background, I um, uh, went to undergraduate at UC- UCLA and my master's at Columbia in African-American studies and my um, PhD back at UCLA in um, cinema media studies. And I've always been interested at in the intersection of media, gender, race, and class um, and really how much media is informed by who's creating it, um, by the political moment that it's in. Um, we realize that television aligns a lot with what's happening politically at the time. So um, with that, with those political thoughts, you know, where do we as black people see ourselves in the media, right? Maybe networks, maybe streaming, all these things change the way which blackness is um, consumed and produced. So I'm always interested in talking about that in any way. And um, I study all things black sitcoms and comedy as well too. And that's kind of where, everything I'm working on. And really um, the basis of everything I do is kind of tracking the ontological status of blackness, how it changed over time, why, and who are the major players a part of that. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So. Before we dive into a lot of
1: those questions, you also are uh, a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Yes, correct. That's yes, Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So shout out to the, all the black Greek letter organizations <laughs> out there. Especially got, got to shout that out during no, Black History Month for sure. Yeah. But I want to start with, you know, you, you started unpacking a couple of different things there about media and representation mm-hmm. uh, and more importantly, things from the black experience. I think that the first question I want to start with, um, I hope it's an easy one
2: for you, is you know what is blackness to you, <laughs> Dr. To see bro. <laughs> wow uh, that is the question we try to figure out every all semester all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. So blackness to me you know it's, uh, it's sometimes it's hard to explain because it's, it's, it's a feeling right to I uh, talk about talk to my students all right there's uh, this you know cultural theorist Stuart Hall talks about black popular culture in general or black culture as kind of three tenets of black culture like the body, music and language, right? And I kind of see, I see that, and so we're watching films, uh, watching TV shows, I tell all my students to look at that. Like, you know, what is the black body doing in in this particular space? You know, uh, what's the music playing? You know, how are they talking? Because you realize you can kind of place the time period in which the show is, you know, you can place like, the artistry, like who's in control of the movements, And really you can kind of trace where people are coming from class-wise as well or like the neighborhoods because of how they talk, right? So um, and the body being such an important thing because, you know, at one point our bodies were owned and like uh, the, how freedom, when, when we got freedom, our bodies were the only things that we kind of ha- owned ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So the body and the stylization of the black body, the fetishization of the black body is right. such an important thing. Looking at the way we talk about Dance histories, the histories of movements. So, looking at all these things, when I think of blackness, I think of you know uh, the diaspora um, movement. How how we look here in America, how we look in the Caribbean, how we look in Africa, how we look in Europe. Right? Uh, blackness, you know, um, transcends space and time. And um, us as black people, we are constantly reevaluating blackness means. So, there's no fixed meaning to it. But particularly, it's a matter of a, there is some essentialism, and like we feel like you know, blackness is a feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's certain phrases and traits that we I can say that we all understand and can respond back to, call and response. But largely, it's a you know a uh, cultural connection to the diaspora, starting in Africa and through the um, migrations, and you know um, us being taken through chattel slavery as well, and how blackness it moves everywhere. So as like blackness moves everywhere, black people as well are you know extended across continents and that's kind of a, that's as short as I can be on what, black, what blackness yeah, means yeah. to me.
1: No, yeah. and I appreciate you defining that. And I know that when you appeared last year on episode 14 of yeah. the audio version of the show, you had talked about y- your father uh, immigrating here from uh, Trinidad, correct? Mm-hmm. And so do you feel like that had
2: anything to do in the shaping of how you're defining blackness? Absolutely, because uh, my father in himself, he, when he came to Trinidad, he was like, I think uh, 14, right? Uh, excuse me, 17. And he actually came Trinidad, lived in, uh, lived in the Bronx and went to high school in the Bronx. And he was at a point, he was 17, so he was like a senior in Trinidad, but they came here, he came to America, they said his education wasn't like, you know, um, up to par with American education. So they made him start as a freshman in high school. I didn't know this until like two years ago, actually. So he didn't graduate high school until he was 21 because they felt that his uh, education in Trinidad wasn't up to it. So, and part of his, like, you know, coming into America, what he did, it was kind of why I studied TV so much, what he did was uh, watch a lot of sitcoms to figure out kind of how it is to act or be, like, black in America, because that was the only um, space we could find what blackness looked like. So sitcoms in general, or television in general, but sitcoms specifically, were always this space of, like, determining what black looks like, Mm -hmm. especially in the early um, 60s and 70s that I study mostly, um, and how people... Are able to understand blackness especially in a time where american blackness you know um you're not living amongst different communities segregation is very much you know um may not be by law but it's by rule right so uh how do people understand black uh, black folks that look at tv or other media so my father did the same thing is like you know to not be like this kind of a caribbean outcast how can i talk act and like be american black right so i definitely see blackness as this idea this transfer of Although, you know, he's blackness by his identity, there is specifically an American black that people kind of are at times forced to be like, right? It could be coming from the Caribbean, it could be coming from West Africa or any part of Africa as well too, uh, Europe, et cetera, uh, or Latinx countries as well. But there's this idea of an American blackness, um, you have to kind of, sometimes through the threat of violence, have to succumb to in order to like survive here safely so that's largely a part of like how i define blackness too is this idea that it changes where you're at you know and if i was american going to move somewhere become an expatriate i'd have to you know um, blend to the what blackness looks like there as well too yeah.
0: i really like you talking about black in america mm-hmm. being a like, nigerian immigrant there's a lot of Cultural differences or just nuances, right? And I'm curious to see, like, based off your research, like the 60s and 70s to now, are there some qualifications or characteristics that are different or that have just stayed the same in how people are identifying in their blackness?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say now people are more comfortable to claim other ethnicities on on television, right? They, like, if someone is, like, you know, Nigerian-American or Nigerian, like, it's, it's like, you know, it's part of their character that's written into the show, right? It's part of the fabric of who they are, which rather than early television, it was like, you know, um, and I use the word, the term black so much rather than African-American because, you know, um, a lot of folks, I don't know what their, their nationality or ethnic background is. So black is kind of this universal term that they can, like, kind of um, um, be involved under. But there are many, like, you know, like Sidney Portier, you know, Poitier, you know, uh, you know um, Caribbean actor from the Bahamas, you know, um, and, you know, you think of people like, you know, Harry Belafonte, all these folks who kind of, who are assumed, like, this idea of, like, and he was held up as that American, what's what American blackness looks like, right? But, you know, was, wasn't raised here, wasn't born here, had an accent, had to fight through that accent be, be, so he can get jobs, right? So this idea that you had to be, simply kind of fall into like, an idea of Americanized black, first to be able to be even considered like you know um something but now i would say in shows they're doing a lot better of like talking about diaspora in a a lot of important ways and you see like a lot of black black british actors using their british accents now Mm -hmm. well too Mm -hmm. uh black nigerian actors you know um expressing their nigerianness right like at times often as you probably know it's like it's used as as a joke right the the accent um, you know you have the uh, the parents who are from the country, then you're the first generation. So it's like it's like yeah. all like this idea of pulling Nigerianness and Americanness. Where are you at? Who are you? Like right. you know, so uh, a lot of shows kind of fl- filter around that now. But that's a story largely that couldn't be told earlier on because you know um, if you are anything other than American in your identity, right. then you are seen as like a threat. And the kind of same thing was actually with whiteness. There was like early shows that had. Jewish, Italian, Irish, um, Norwegian folks, and then until a point that it became dangerous for them so they had to kind of um, claim American whiteness, right? Which is why we see kind of a distance from shows like that, like shows in the 50s and 60s that talked about um, European immigrants um, through the threat of violence and through realizing that they're treated better if they just say they're American Mm -hmm. white. they stopped kind of claiming and stopped having shows that focus largely on these uh, immigrant experiences. Okay. So it became be a matter of safety and trying to distance America, distancing itself from Europe and also distancing itself from other countries. Ameri- if you're in America, this is how you be American. Wow. Right.
1: Wow. So I'm wondering just in terms of how you describe blackness, what would you say um, is the current conversation around media mm-hmm. from the standpoint of blackness?
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, it's in a good place. I mean, obviously, you could always be doing better, but it's in a good place that uh, it's fluid now. It's mo- much more fluid than it has been in recent past. Like, there's uh, we see blackness like it, it used to be relegated just to, like sitcoms, right? But we see much more of it. A good amount of it in drama. We see a lot of it in like sci-fi, supernatural things, right? Uh, we see a lot of you know documentary work in it, like a you know non-narrative film as well. So I think. Media-wise, uh, we're seeing blackness kind of um, get away from this monolith, and we're seeing it get away from these very fixed categories that it was in. Um, but and then we we think about I actually got asked a question in class today. We're talking about you know um, black male actors in like the sixties and how like Sidney Poitier was. The ideal black man. There was only mm-hmm. you know one black man at a time. Yep. Right. One black, sh- one black yes. show at a time. Yes. Right. And so <laughs> I'm now, glad you went there. now there's like six black men right now. <laughs> okay. You know. Right. Like, okay. you know, <laughs> that's better. Right. But the fact that the fact that uh, someone's like, asking for that progress, I was like, yeah, it's progress. But the fact that I can name these people, mm-hmm. name all seven or six, that's still a problem, right? right. Uh, if I was asked about some white actors, we can kind of go on and on and on, right? And I think that you know there's a space now that looks at. You know, right now, diversity is a big selling point, right? Mm-hmm. Every school, every business, every everything. Like, DEI is this huge point, and they're trying to make it clear through um, through Hollywood as well. But I think when it comes to streaming services, I think the, that the rise of streaming has made um, diversity a, a more real thing rather than images seeming kind of just like plastic in the, in the sense that like, you know, they're just a, a black person on screen and check a box. Okay, we have diversity, right? Mm-hmm. What is that black person doing, right? Uh, is there a character culturally specific in any way or is he just simply a character that's there, right? And um, I think that a lot of shows are being more intentional now, um, but you'll see a lot of like these ensemble casts, the big cast shows, where at times it's very tokenized still or just to have a black person there to count as diversity, but diversity truly means to me um, a cultural experience that's expressed through the show. Um, what is them being black, like how do we know, like they are black in image, right? But what, is their, um, what are their actions on the show? How are they practicing their blackness? How do they show difference in that way? Um, so I think, yeah, as far as blackness, it, it is showing that it can be fluid, right? It's showing that it could exist in different genres. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of more work to do, but I think we're going on the right path at the moment. So you mentioned um, some of the
1: earlier sitcoms, you mm-hmm. mentioned a lot of the, uh, and I know a lot of your work f- um, focuses on sitcoms early, like especially within the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. I was reading something earlier today, it's an older article from about three or four years ago, and it talked about All in the Family. Yes. And it talked about Archie Bunker, Yes. and it talked about his character and how, um, despite certain things, there's a, there is a redemptive nature mm-hmm. to him, if you really look at the complexity uh, of uh, who Carol O'Connor played. Do you feel like Archie Bunker or a character like that in 2022, would a show like All in the Family make it? Because nostalgia's ruling the day right now. Would a show like All in the Family make it in 2022? Absolutely not.
2: Uh, uh, Because All in the Family did what it was, uh, you know, it did what it did. And All in the Family, honestly, it it, it changed culture. Like All in the Family, you know... um, That was the first show to ever have like a viewer discretion advice type of show, Mm. type of description before it came on, right? And it's uh, it's an important show because it it started this era, it was called the Era of Relevance, pretty much television in the 70s that talked about uh, what's really happening in America from the perspective of a, you know, working class white man, right? This very waspy, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, like, you know, he's supposed to um, be the image of the conservative White working class male, which is like most of America, right? So that's he's supposed to be that image, right? And he has his younger uh, son-in-law and daughter. Those are like kind of the new liberal class coming in. So it's really looking at what America is looking at the, at this time period of 1971, mm-hmm. um, what America is like right now. So, but from perspective of bringing those conversations actually to television, right? Television beforehand was ignoring those conversations, right? And as Archie Bunker is this character, you know, extreme, like you know, prejudiced. Um, what it was was a reality, you know. Um, that, that, like, you know, I think um, Norman Lear, the creator of the show, said, "That's like my dad and me," because, you know, that's that's their culture, that's who they are, that's their that's their history. Um, not saying any of it's okay, but it's the it's talking about the reality of the fact that majority of America looks like Archie Bunker, but mm-hmm. no one wants to actually admit it, right? But with this new guard of young liberals coming coming into the play, especially you know during the wartime uh, student protests. Um, violent uprising, civil rights movement, kind of the post-civil rights movement era, you're seeing, um, you know, look, even with the Jefferson family moving next door to them, you're seeing this way in which neighborhoods are changing. Right. Black people are getting money now. They're, they're working. They're having, owning homes. They're coming to these neighborhoods that were always white, right? So what it did was really make clear um, the reality of where, what my, white America looks like and how white America now has to contend with the fact that, you know, people of color are here, and uh, you can't, you, you can no longer block their progress. And I think, you know, Carol O'Connor himself, he hated playing the role of Archie Bunker, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and you see him later on in shows like, I'm um, in the heat of the night, yep. where he's that one, he's the white chief that accepts the black cop, right? right. It's crazy right. seeing these two people, yes. act, the it same was actor, in very, confusing and as a kid <laughs> they're very different that. roles, right? <laughs> but. What he did was um, in this show, and I think watching it now, especially as a black person, it's like hard to watch that show because he used all types of you know jungle bunny, all types of you oh know, yeah, all types of terms. And think about it, wow, seventies television like really went there. And largely, there were a lot of laws that weren't in place yet because it hasn't happened yet. So those creators they took advantage of the fact that oh nothing's none nothing says we can't say this yet, so let's say it. So the way in which he talked and um, kind of ruminated about the good old days um, wouldn't be. Accepted now, <laughs> it wouldn't even really get past uh, past uh, you know um, the writing desk. But what it did was make clear that television can and needs to be the space to talk about what's happening in, in America publicly because it's publicly owned. You know, like the Federal Communications Commission owns television. Uh, be, well, excuse me, runs television on the government side because television is you know publicly owned. Um, and it's all for, that's why there's like laws. you can't say certain things on tel- on on, na- on network television, you can't say certain things, you can't, you know, uh, be certain like level of prejudice. If you're talking about certain things, you have to kind of bring the story back around of like how's a teaching moment. There's these things in place because network television is protected, mm-hmm. right? Versus like streaming platforms or paid for cable television, right? So CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, those type of shows, and like PBS are, you know, government has to have regulations on them. So with that comes the fact that how is this television show going to serve the public? And I think at that time period, its shock value was why it got so popular. But when folks kind of sit down and sit with the show, you realize it's serving the public because they're having talks that weren't talked about before. And it's so shocking because everyone knows this exists, but like, you can't possibly put that on television. You know, no one wants to actually hear this about themselves. And no one wanted to see themselves in that negative light. And I think that that's what that show did in a very important way. Thank you for sharing that, because yeah. I know for me, that was that was something I was thinking about. I'm
1: like, you know, to see Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker, yeah. Then go stay at my grandma's <laughs> house. Uh, and you know, when you on the sick day back in the day, oh, yeah. you know, lay, laying on grandma's couch and the, in the heat of the night. When you're getting ready was, for was school. That, oh, day. yes, yeah, sir. Yeah, yeah. That was that nighttime <laughs> remedy, right? And so, yeah.
2: And the thing is, without a show like that, we wouldn't have had these important black shows of the 70s, because that show, mm-hmm. it's shocking all value, but more so it's its grasped over American viewers, because at the end of the day, TV only cares about how much viewers they're going to get right. and how much advertising they can run through these shows. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, this show's probably terrible. Like, it's probably saying a lot of bad things, but look, we got, we're the number one show for five years straight. Mm-hmm. So what they did with that show, they, like the creators, Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin, they said, kind of, do whatever y'all want to do. Y'all had, They had, like, this kind of monopoly over television. So they had, at one point of the 70s, five of their shows, like, were all top four, at least, in, in Nielsen ratings, right? So because of... The success of that show, they were able to have your San Francisco Good Times Jeffersons, right? So, really, this show kind of was a platform talking about real stuff and how we were able to get more um, black actors and writers and producers in the system.
0: I like that you were talking about how these shows were game changers, right? Mm-hmm. They had set a precedent, they are changing the narrative. I'd love to bring it to some of the shows that we're watching now, like of Blackish, course. for example. Yeah. Like I think yeah. that is it's just it's ending now. Mm-hmm. But it was a game changer show, right? Absolutely. Like and what do you think it was about the that show specifically that it was on for a decent long time mm-hmm. and, and it was it was talking about a lot of things that people were shocked that they were talking about. Yeah
2: um i love blackish right and i think it's now show. it's um it's in its ending season and i think it's ending on a point that like you know yeah it's time it's time you know, I, you know shows reach their time and i think largely because the creative power like you know the creator kenya Barrett's is not really even there anymore so like it, it changed the flow of the show and the feel of it but while it's so important is because you know it's it was that black sitcom of the time you know what i mean um where there are no other black sitcoms on, on tv at the moment um but so much is happening in america and um We're seeing the perspective on the news sites, on other sitcoms and television shows, but what about this black family perspective, right? And a lot of folks, you know, when it first came out, so many folks were like, oh, it's going to be the uh, 21st Century Cosby, all that Mm -hmm. stuff, which Mm -hmm. I hated that narrative around it. Same. Because this is his own thing, and I think that it extends the work because, you know... um, as important as that show was, that show being Cosby Show, and we're talking about the show, not the person. The show, not to the make person, that very clear. Yeah. Camera. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as important as that show was, and it can't be denied, um, there are many things that that show did. That that show has so much more potential to talk about and, and, and address that it didn't, right? But um, Blackest really, as an ABC sitcom, you know, national viewership, big network, they really, um, and I think in an era that. It, Blackish had to be like now, you know, yeah. um, it couldn't have been 20 years ago. It had to be now where um, more of a kind of a liberal America, more of a liberal space where you have like actual producers and, and people in the studios that kind of like care more about issues, I would say a little bit more. They're still about the bottom line and the, and the bottom dollar, of course. But we're in a political space that was, a, is a calamity, right? And like a lot, so many things going on along with Black Lives Matter movement, along with Schools, uh, everything changing so much. So, we needed a way to make it all palatable, right? That's what kind of where comedy comes in the sitcom space. And I think what was able to happen with Blackish, we were able to talk about these very tough issues in a lighthearted way, but but real, right? right. Bringing folks like, you know, Lawrence Fishburne and Jennifer Lewis, they probably weren't supposed to be long term act characters on the show, but one, you know, they're black, like, legends mm-hmm. in television, icons. Right? icons. So, having them on the show alone was like, all right, that's going to bring some folks to the show. But really, um, having this, you know, black family, you know, successful, um, to be able to talk about, you know, all the shows that things that probably didn't talk about, colorism, you right, mm. um, colorism, uh, difference of opinion as far as, like, class status, or like, how they grew up, one growing up more, you know, wealthy or uh, more, you know, with a mixed family, one growing up from the hood, like all these intra-racial discussions that happen. I think that's why it's important, because shows talk a lot about, to be black and white fam black and white communities, but what about within the black community right um, you have this very successful like you know businessman in advertising he comes to the head of like the I think it's like urban development or mm-hmm. urban advertising mm-hmm. right obviously right but you think of like the comedy and the, obviously but he how he uses that to like you know all right if it was a white person in that role that would be a problem right So you think about these things that are, are real and it reflects to a lot of folks that are kind of in these positions and it had like now those type of spaces exist in advertising companies, right? So it reflected the way America is now um, and brought that full front and to a point that's like, there are a lot of you know, uh, naysayers about the show still, a lot of folks still don't like it, you know, um, you know, white and black. But I think what's important about this show was that they really uh, brought forth so a lot of issues that were important to be talked about in a palatable way but didn't skirt away from the issue, that, like make it seem like they were kind of like, you know, shying away from it. The comedy toned it down, which is the point of sitcoms in general, like, you know, to kind of, oh, comedy in general, calm down some of the seriousness, but the show, you know, tackled things that we weren't going to talk about. Because, like, the sitcom mode in itself is, is largely played out. When you think about sitcoms, largely about a family, picket fence, you know, and, uh, There's an episode where the kid doesn't know how to dance, there's a school dance coming up. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you've seen that time and time again, specifically in, like, white sitcoms. I saw it in the Brady Bunch. Exactly. So many times. (laughs) And I think what's important about these shows, uh, these sitcoms, especially black sitcoms, is that you have to, their their culture is a large, a huge part of it. So that story comes along with that. And you can't ignore, like, the, you know, the struggle that comes along with being black, especially with these folks. They're black, middle-class folks living in Los Angeles. I don't care your class status, you're going as a black person living in a metropolitan city, you're going to face issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not be the same as someone living in poverty in those issues, in the issues, right? But there are going to be issues at, if not in your neighborhood, at your job, place of business, you know, they're going to be there. So what it does is really tap into like a, um, also kind of a, a middle-class status of individuals and folks who work at the corporate level, like mm-hmm. the things that they go through at work, you know, that. That one white employee that tries to be cool, which you're down, right? And all these little things that come about, and I think that it really tapped into a generation of folks who are, you know, a huge buying power in media. Um, but what about their working-class lifestyle, or oh, excuse me, their, their, uh, their upper-class, kind of um, middle-upper-class lifestyle at work? You know, it's not simply they're at work and everyone's happy-go-lucky, oh, he's the black guy, you know, like, no, there are these small microaggressions that exist kind of in all these spaces, especially the higher up you go, right? And I think that this show made those things clear and that's why it's so popular and um, has great moment now. And I think that it was that show that, you know, had the, had the realms to be that one black sitcom show. So that's another thing too, like, these shows were also important because, or, or uh, widely watched because there was no other black sitcom at the, at the time. You know what I mean? So uh, that's going to make a lot of people be attracted to this as well because, look, we got to all, especially black folks, hey, we got to watch tonight. You got to get the numbers up. You yes. Know? So, yes. <laughs> so it's very important that a show like this existed how it did. Um, it's ending on a great note. But, you know, there that goes to a larger problem. There needs to not be just a one show that represents the race. And um, that show did it for so long. And I think that uh, to a point that it's ending on a great note now needs to end. But we should never be in that space, especially on network television. Mm-hmm. It's still the most watched form form of television. if You think of folks in like the rural areas. We think of the streaming now right. as mostly watched, but net- networks are still the mostly watched because that's what everyone has access to, right? right? You don't have to have because you know premium cable and streaming companies. You have money for that. You have to have. I know. I got I got my cousin account too, but <laughs> you have to have money for most <laughs> of this the stuff. Nielsen right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nielsen ratings. You have to have money for these uh, for these things. So when it comes to networks. Those are still the most important. Those are the backbone of what television started as. Television is supposed to be kind of this great equalizer. It was called the citizen machine. So television was all about making what an American citizen um, should hear, should look like, should communicate about. So the networks and what they play, especially about black certain communities, that's what everyone can see. Mm-hmm. So if only one show represents that, that's a, that's a, that's not good. So we need to have multiple shows representing what blackness looks like in many ways.
1: So do you feel like streaming services are going to help with that? Because you think about, you know, you got Bel Air on Peacock. Mm-hmm. You, um, you've got uh, Tubi and then you got, you know, uh, Grown-ish went out there. And then now you got Abbott Elementary on ABC yeah. coming in, Insecure on HBO, which we got to talk mm-hmm. about while we got you here. Yeah. Um, uh, you got a bunch of other shows that are happening. Do you feel like streaming services are helping? You know, broaden the number of black television shows that are out there, yeah. or because we're so stratified, we're in so many different
2: places, it's hurting it. It's helping. It's helping broaden them, I, but I think it's still an issue, like, because I think as far as, like, sitcoms on network television, you have Abbott Elementary, which is fantastic, oh, yeah. and you have uh, Keenan, I believe, like, Keenan Ivory mm-hmm. Wayne's, uh, not Keenan Ivory wayne excuse me, Keenan Thompson, yep. totally different people. Uh, Keenan Thompson's show, right? Uh, definitely, like, you know, uh, Icon in black popular culture and comedy. But uh, that's it, right? Two very different shows. And again, it's always like, you know, we can always count on our fingers how many there are, but how many. White sitcoms are there? How many mm-hmm. sitcoms of other races are there? Right, but I love that what streaming is doing because yeah, it is broadening it in, in, in an important way. You know, we have um, what's a Harlem on Amazon Hell Prime? Yes. Love Harlem. Run the World on Stars, right? Especially seeing black black women are, are really killing it right now yes. in, in, in an amazing way, getting that access to do such right, um, and so many other shows and other in other like premium cable networks. You know, and Atlanta's coming back finally. You know, they all been too damn busy but now they're back you right so really everything's coming back in full force and I love that about it like you know the fact that there is a black show kind of on every streaming service is, is a beautiful thing, right? I th- And I think that it, it needs to be spread because not, not everyone has all the services, you know, because now there's a Paramount Plus, there's a Peacock, there's a... And, like, I'm losing track, and, you know, my bank account is showing it, too. Okay. But... <laughs> but... And I have, like, that black show, even the dramas. I have my powers, the whole universe, you know? I'm like, you know, not going off of not to sitcoms, just dramas, too, you know? Seeing all of this is important, and I think that it needs to be everywhere. So yeah. I think it also shows the fluidity of what blackness looks like because all these shows are different. You know, I'll tackle on different types of blackness too. But again, um, it's harmful to the networks where obviously it is, uh, to have a network show is very difficult, a successful one is very difficult, right? These streaming companies, specifically on like a Netflix or a Prime, Amazon, they have nothing to lose with their streaming because they have such a big, you know, their services is mainly, you know, Items that shipped and stuff like, you know, they're shopping through Amazon is what their main service is. They make billions off of that. So if a show fails for them, they don't really lose much. Because it comes with your subscription. Exactly. (laughs) It comes with your prime
1: membership, right? you're going to
2: buy that book on Amazon anyway, right? So, (laughs) and, um, but you think of Netflix too, they already have your money, right? So they can create a show and um, if it fails, it fails, right? But when you think of network television, it's all about the advertisers, right? What What shows are the advertisers going to back and how can um, successful would those shows be? So really when it comes to uh, streaming services, all that is great, but the networks that are still the most watched channels on, on television America wide, what is this saying about what black, blackness looks like, yeah. right? Uh, why, don't, why is blackness of an array of blackness only accessible to folks who have money? Or you know, to the access of, of wealth and class makes a difference to how we see blackness so i think that um, there's a detriment in that space where you know there needs to be kind of a more open forms of how we can experience race in these ways but largely with streaming services you know um, it comes from a matter of being able to afford them and um, that's where we get our array of you know i think us at a you know at a university you know access to certain materials we get is like there's there's some privilege there of course mm-hmm. right but other folks who you know may not be here in this space um, they don't have access to that, you know, they may not even know what a Harlem is, right? Because that's still very much is a kind of like, if you know, you know, thing, you know? Um, so things like, yeah, exactly, amazing show, but it's still like, you know, if you have Prime, and if you have this, if you have this, you can watch this, and you know, Apple TV Plus comes out with stuff, you know, there's all these things coming out, these different streaming companies, and we it's just like, it's gonna come to a point that this kind of array of creativity in streaming might become a deficit because, you know, um, is there ever a true like freedom of creativity, right? Because there's still a person that controls all this stuff that gives all of it to say so. And I think net- networks are definitely much more uh, rigid because of the, you know, the government control around them, but they need to be taken more uh, seriously and we need to do more work to get things on networks because um, we need to be able to utilize uh, the public forum to see blackness in a diverse way.
0: So speaking of the deficit of creativity, you, we talked touched on Insecure, Harlem, Girls on the Run, they're all for me personally they all have the same basis. They're four four, <laughs> four black women, women yes. best friends, one's uber rich, one might be of a minority, marginalized group, the other one has dating issues. So the living the,
2: single girlfriends. Living okay. single, yeah, peace of yeah, yeah. love, yeah, you know, yeah. all that stuff. So <laughs>
0: In my head, I'm like, one, like, I'm going to watch Harlem. Well, I watch Insecure in Harlem because yeah. that's what I got. I got you, I got go you. I got um, you. <laughs> but, I mean, the storyline's the same. Yeah. Is that is that kind of what you're seeing with the deficit of creativity and that it's placed everywhere? Mm-hmm. So is it going to be new? Like, is the storyline?
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think that's an important thing you mentioned. Um, I think in that aspect, I would say, like, uh, it's funny you say, like, the Insecure, cause, like, Insecure is like, for Friends as well, too. I think it goes... It goes farther, right? You don't. Yeah, you don't really realize about <laughs> it. Yeah. it goes further than the other shows, in my opinion, for sure. But you're right. There's this is makeup of, and I'm sure there's a there's a production study or audience study like that likes this idea of four. Four is an even hmm. good number to work with, right? So you can kind of, you can have that one that like you know you can have the identities. It's like they, they're doing it's all about this idea of like a sitcom tradition. So they only do what works. So 4 has worked for them over time because they worked on like living single girlfriends. This idea that you can kind of spread apart like these different images of what black women may look like, right? I think um, Harlem's doing good, you know, having a black queer woman there, like, you know, bringing some more difference, but still, yeah, this idea of 4 women uh, struggling to find love, oh, professionalism, <laughs> right? It's always, it's always that struggle, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think that, uh, yeah, that goes to a, a, a deficit. Well, I think, you know, we look at, drama shows, you know, where it's kind of like, you know, I may destroy you, stuff like that, where it is, it's some difference, but like the sitcom mode tends to be the same. And and that's kind of like sitcoms in general, I think now, um, where they kind of follow a certain formula because sitcoms are still kind of the most, they're like the easiest to be made and the easiest to be canceled as well. Like when it comes to sitcoms, especially ones that are on like a fixed stage, like a three camera stage, like that's like cheap for them to make because, you know, um, you're not moving around the camera, following someone. Not all sitcoms. Some sitcoms are like that now. But sitcoms are kind of cheaper and made. You know, they're, they're quick, um, especially on the streaming services. You know, we don't have to worry about advertising placements and stuff. So they follow a formula that works for them. But I think, yeah, there needs to be more creativity because we, we, all, funny, we all know the formula already. We still watch it because uh, it's like, it's there, you know? <laughs> like, you know and, and they look like me, you know? So you want to watch it, yeah. they look like you, right? And you want to hear their stories. but. The formula goes over time because it it works, but I think there other things work as well too. And all, although these are showing like kind of blackness in different ways for these four people, why is it always four? Why can't it be two or three, right? And um, it's this idea that uh, I guess four is a good way to spread it evenly, and so we're not too like you know um, too uh, leaning into one particular character more than than too many others. But there needs to be other uh, forms, I think. And I think, you know, um, I'm not a sitcom writer, and I know that um, I definitely would uh, defer to many writers in this case, but there definitely needs to be a way in which we kind of break from these norms and traditions of like certain structures of, of format. And I think that uh, blackness in and of itself is a thing about, you know, breaking through uh, identity, breaking through formats, breaking through like, you know, preconceived notions. And I think that, uh our identity needs to be expressed right? as, as far as we need to break through the sitcom narrative because it largely wasn't created by us in general, right? So uh, we got to break through the narrative that's kind of be, been consistent over time. Yeah, and, and that first black show, you know, Living Single, that wasn't until 1992. Uh, 90, I was 92. 92? yeah. Mm-hmm. So 92. with that, it's like, you know, um, it's really it's 30 years, but it's kind of really not that long ago, right? And you think about it. So even black women starring in sitcoms is still new. Right. Um, And then, you know, you have people thinking, like, you know, you know, uh, you know, friends is a black is black living single. Right. You know, um, and people pretend to forget (laughs) that. (laughs) Uh, So you got to realize these formats and how they're created and kind of and they're usurped and given more funding when it comes to casting white white individuals. Right. So largely we created this form and which means we can kind of create a a new form and break away from that as well.
1: So do you feel like. Because for, for, we, you mean you, you work in the uh, Moody College of Communications, and specifically with radio, television, and film. Yes. There's, there actually, there's, there's several online and some in the room who are, are potentially your students and some have been your yeah. students. What advice do you have for them? as they think about their scripts, as they think about their network pitches and the different things that they're ultimately going to go on and do uh, when they graduate. What advice do you have for them for breaking those conventions for um, the the four black women or defining blackness? Like, what advice do you have for them to be able to break into those spaces and shatter those norms or introduce new ones?
2: Yeah, I like what uh, what Moody does, uh, RTS specifically, Radio Television and Film does, uh, and a lot of schools, don't do this um they make you know those who are in production um focuses they make them take you know media studies courses right Mm -hmm. learning media history that's very important because i think that makes that biggest better writers better people people who are better able to like take on um this new production industry as it comes because if you know the history of what's been done before um you know how to make a way forward and you know how to sometimes even harken back when necessary right so if you're making a new show you know like kind of um a lot of folks get inspiration from these other shows of the past, right? You know how to branch off from them. Like, you know, you a saw a show from the from the mid-70s that you really enjoyed. Like, how can I make that show into, like, a, you know, a 21st century version of it? And I think that's very important. Though. So, like, um, learning the history is where I always tell my um, students, which is why I have these courses that track history over time because it's, like, why does blackness look one way in the 60s and a different way in the 80s, right? Think about what's happening politically, right? The civil rights movement versus, like, Reagan and Reaganomics, right? You have a very conservative 80s. Blackness is kind of like this, you know, uh, fixed look on like, you know, happy-go-lucky family that happens to be black, sure. right? In the 60s, you have shows like, um, you know, Mod Squad, I Spy, et cetera, where they're trying to place black people into lead roles to calm down the civil rights issues, right? So you think of... Like, Everything going on in American history has to do with how we see TV in, in that particular moment. So knowing that history, you know, I think it helps inform um, new shows that they can create, helps inform like, you know uh, what didn't work and why, sure. <laughs> right? And also um, how they can use their spaces in production to, to make way for for what's new. And I think that um, what the larger issue is a lot of folks in production, like they have the power. You know, TV is a producer's medium largely, meaning like, you know, the executive producer, the producer has the power, the writers have some power if you get on a staff writing position, but the director in TV is on, is on like, a contractual basis, like one episode, two episodes, and that's it. The director largely doesn't really have control when it comes to TV. Mm-hmm. It's the executive producer that's there every day. The showrunner is what they call, they call it now, right? Um, that's the power. So to understand how history of executive producers started, kind of mainly in the 70s moment with Norman Lear, Bud Yorkin, Mary Tyler Moore. Um, even like, you know, um, Lucille Ball, right? People who kind of pretty much ran um, ran the scripts, created the show, um, did everything on set. That power, and you think of now, like Ashonda Rhimes, Ava DuVernay, mm-hmm. you know, all these folks who are uh, showrunners, they have kind of that complete control over set. Like, it's not, the, it's not the really the writers. The writers have a cer- certain say, but like, how can you weave through writing and production culture? But also, you have to know about the history of that culture, how it started, and that's how you're able to kind of... Um, Use your power more effectively in that system. I'm going to let you take the last question and then oh, we're going to take no. questions from our oh my audience. Gosh. Well, no, we're not out of
1: time. It's just we're going to give our audience a chance to ask questions as well as our uh, viewers online. Uh, We've got a couple uh, that are viewing online as well as here in the room. So I want to give folks a check. Now, we, now, again, if they don't have any, yeah. you know, we'll talk. Clearly we're podcasting too. I, yeah, I'm
0: curious. <laughs> so you're in the classroom, you're teaching with a lot of students. Yeah. We talked about you know identifying with your blackness. Um, how do you feel like, what does the conversation sound like and look like currently in your classes, how students are defining their blackness? Mm-hmm.
2: I start the classes always with like kind of what are you watching now, right? Because uh, I like to reflect on, you know, uh, well obviously got to meet the students where they're at. And um, also I like talk about, like my black film course I'm doing right now, uh, you know, what black filmmakers do you know, right? Because like I will always try to make sure I teach about ones that no one knows about, right? Uh, ones that are very pivotal, um, that just like, you know, because this idea of, um, it happened in television and films, idea of a canon, right? The canon largely is created by, you know, it's canons in every field, you know, education, English, history this canon of writers who kind of determine what this field is. And majority, more often than not, 98% of the time, those are white individuals, white men specifically, white heterosexual men. And um, I make sure that to ask them where they're at and um, who they're watching, what's important to them, because I want to determine my class around what's going to serve them best, right? And also, I want them to leave with something. Like if you have 14 weeks of stuff you already know about, but that one week you found someone new, I think that's that's a success for me because I think that um, there's so many artists over time that don't get um, canonized or don't get put in, you know, these studies of studies of American history uh, because simply they didn't have the support or the funding or their films didn't reach a certain reach while they were alive, but they had a you know cult status once they passed away, things like that. Mm-hmm. I wanna bring them back to the forefront and like live through them because the films are living objects, TV shows are living objects, right? We're we're commenting now on shows. Uh, in my classes, that you know, happened in the fifties, who I'm sure they probably didn't know the impact of what their show would be then, right? So, as far as define their blackness now, I kind of take them where they're at. As far as like you know, um, you know, do they even see themselves within the spectrum of blackness, wow. too? Because I think, you know, um, I never assume one's identity, I never assume kind of how they see themselves, but I want to also you know, open them up to like you know this is how I define blackness, or this is how you know, blackness has been defined um, academically. And I want to always kind of push away from just the academic talk and jargon, because in academia, we, can, we find ourselves having a lot of jargon, a lot of ways in which we kind of code our language so people don't, outside of the schools yes. don't understand yeah. it. And I always hated that, like ivory tower rhetoric, right? So it happens <laughs> everywhere. And I've always been, I have always disliked that. So in my writing, in my, in my teaching, in my lectures, I always make sure to um, speak to people, you know, as if like, it's the first time you're ever hearing about this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Because you have to meet them where they're at, and you know, and I think also folks tend to kind of um, act like or uh, feel like they should know these things so they never talk about not knowing them, mm-hmm. right? So um, a lot, I met, a, I met as a, a, the other day, a class I showed, you know, Boys in the Hood was like this kind of, if you, you assume if you black, you've seen Boys in the Hood. I've had, like, had about at least six or seven black students who hadn't seen the movie before. And actually, I love that because oh, I, I, y'all are going to remember me in the film now. Yeah, yeah. And they're telling me they're, talking they're crying, all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, wow. you, know, you know, when Ricky, uh, the Ricky tears were flowing, you know, Ricky. all these things are, you know, important, kind of, we feel like staples in black community, right, mm-hmm, or black culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just because it was something for us, like, and... I think oftentimes folks are like, oh, you haven't seen that. Oh, testing, kind of take their black card, testing their blackness, right, right? Right. And that's one thing I never try to do. Like I always ask them, like you know, uh, why you take this class? You know, I think that's, that's one way to I, I barometer, like you know, how they feel about blackness. And because like, if they're black and they feel like they they don't prescribe a blackness, that's fine too, you know. But this class is about black film. We're talking about black film, culture, history, people, community, uh, creators. And That's the perspective of all these films. You know, There are other films that talk about black communities, but I'm talking about films that are about black people and from black creators. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are in this class. That's what we're going to talk about. But if you feel like, you know, just taking the class for a credit, which is fine, too, um, know that you're interested in class. We're talking about blackness and how it changes over time, particularly how it's casted over time and who has like the space to talk about blackness. So, um, meeting them where they're at, not judging where they're at based off kind of what they watch and stuff. Because a lot of folks too, just like um, their upbringings, you know, they may have been barred from watching TV and film, which a lot of folks are. They, a lot of them, you know, um, socioeconomically couldn't afford cable, you know? Um, A lot of them didn't have access to movies and other canonical things. A lot of them are immigrants who didn't know about a lot of these shows and stuff too. So um, I love meeting people where they're at and I love introducing people to new, especially black people to new black shows that they never knew about because they see themselves I did a talk with, about, you know, um, a different world the other day. And, like, the larger crowd of all black students, mainly they hadn't seen it before. Mm. And now they want to watch it, because it's all on HBO Max, you know. Um, they all want to watch it now, because they're like, wow, I still see my, This is, like, 1988, 87, 88, when it started, and I, they see themselves in it. Especially the struggles of, you know, being a black student at a predominantly white institution, mm-hmm. right? Seeing these black students at a at an all black school, how they're able to network, com- uh, find community, so how can they make kind of their own little community here at UT? So like finding ways to meet them where they're at mm-hmm. and stuff that they haven't watched before. All right, let's watch it and talk about it. How do you feel about this? So I asked every student, like, you know, um, after a screening, what do I think about this? How do you feel about it? Did you hate it? Did you like it? You know, and not judging them based off of their, um, where they're at, um, just like talking to them now, like, all right, seeing this film from 85, does it reflect to you now in any ways? Do you make them skip season one? <laughs> so I show... I'm
1: intentionally asking that I question, I show episode folks.
2: one so I can show the rest of it. So okay, they see just making sure. I'm like,
1: forget episode one. I'm talking season, skip all season, of season yeah, yeah. one. But also, Pre-Debbie Allen.
2: And a huge portion Lord. of that, you know, talk about <laughs> content creators is why, you know, people when talk about histories of a, uh, a different world. We're not talking about any episodes in season one. We're talking about season two on. Thank you. Like, and everything <laughs> changes. And But that is a complete history and lesson, a two-week-long lesson about what changes when you have black creators talking about black issues on television? And I think that's an important thing, like black content being from a, a black perspective and what changes in the show because of that. Uh, I know,
1: I, I said that to who got that last question, so my apologies yeah, for molding no. that in there. It's just, <laughs> but when yeah. we talk a different world, it's like I, I have to... I cringe watch season one just to be like, yeah. let's just get this over with. Yeah. Let's get this over with, and then boom! Immediately, we change the theme song. <laughs> Debbie Allen fires everybody, yeah. and it's like, oh, we, this this school went from a PWI to an HBCU, like it was supposed like, to be almost
2: overnight, honestly, and, and in a great way. And I think that yeah, it's important to watch to understand TV history and understand power structures, yes. and understand that like, kind of this like uh, TV, like all kind of. You, know, like you think nepotism in business. TV has nepotism. Like, they go to who they know can write television. right? But writing television, like, you know, it's not easy, of course, but writing television is like you know, a skill, of course. But when it comes to you know, white studios, X, ex- and, and, and EPs, they go to who they know. And uh, simply a white person who did not go to HBCU or understand the college black culture experience cannot run a show about black college culture. And I think that they rely on this person who is a great, you know, Ann Beats. Uh, great writer, great right? for saying that live, great comedian, but you were kind of out of your depth in this case when talking about a specific black culture, and that's not you know a discredit to you, but you're just you just can't align with it, right? And I think that uh, that was a huge lesson in the importance of um, black cultural creators in these spaces talking about black popular culture. Um, but yeah, getting to your question is meeting students where they're at in their in their blackness or journey to, to such. Right? I remember I've talked to some folks who like they felt like kind of they told me kind of they, you know, were um, school. <laughs> they told me they felt more black after my class. I was like, that's cool. With me. <laughs> you know, I like that. But also too, like once people feel like you know, some students say like they're like they're kind of like you know, uh, not mad but upset with their parents didn't show them these these films and shows too, right? And I think that's an important thing. Is just like these shows track you know. Um, different times in black popular culture and blackness, what blackness looks like in the 90s or 2000s and earlier than that. So meeting them where they're at and um, showing these films now at at a kind of more adult age and like talking through the film rather than just watching the film passing by. It's about literacy, media literacy. Like what are you learning from this film? Yeah, we just saw a scene of someone doing a drug deal, but let's talk about the character. Is the character poor? Why is he poor? Why does he sell drugs? Do you think he's a bad character? No. Why do he think he sells drugs? Because he can't afford anything else. He has no education because his mom made him get, uh, drop out of school to go to work. So you think about the societal issue, so like, it's about reading the film more deeply. He's not simply a drug addict or should be a drug dealer. Um, think about why he had to succumb to that. Think about the socioeconomic background. Think deeper into film and media, and that's how you kind of get the most out of it, I think.
1: So what we're gonna do now is, uh, for our audience that's here in person and all those who are uh, viewing online, gonna give you a chance, put your questions uh, in the chat. Uh, For those of you who are in the room, feel free to ask your questions out loud. The microphone will pick you up. Uh, But don't worry, you won't be on screen. So if you're worried, like, I don't wanna be seen, that's okay, you you don't have to worry about that. But uh, what questions do y'all have for Dr. Sebro? I
3: have a question. You kinda of answered it and I'm glad you did. But I was wondering how do you see the future of like the African diaspora supporting or like crowdfunding platforms mm-hmm. like BET to support narratives around the world to like break those
1: misconceptions
2: that have already been told? Yeah, yeah. So um great question, thank you. Uh there was this like very ambitious uh thing, I think it's about twenty fourteen, I believe. I may I may be wrong with the year, but it was called AfroStream. It was this uh proposed platform out of this um this um uh, black uh, frenchman um, proposed platform that was about really the entire african diaspora so the whole streaming service was about um, the african diaspora every show on there was about you know um, black americans black europeans black latinx folks uh, uh... africans et cetera so the whole platform was about pushing forward media th- of the diaspora right Did a lot of crowdfunding you know went to silicon valley to get money a lot of donations and stuff and it had, you know, it's kind of uh, it. It lingered for a little bit, you know, didn't reach a certain popularity, but it kind of ended up kind of failing because of lack of funding, you know, folks, because it's it started competing with like at first it was, you know, based in Africa, and you know, um, Nollywood or Nigerian films, uh, you know, that's like the biggest market of uh, of film, like straight to pretty much straight straight to video market that they have there. It's the biggest market of like you know selling and, and creating media. Um, well, they say second biggest, biggest compared to like uh, Bollywood, but really I think it's I think it's the biggest. They just have like they don't have the metrics to measure how how fast that stuff moves in Nigeria and Nollywood, right? But so Afrostream had a kind of um, control over like you know um, casting larger West African film because no one was, was controlling it, and then the very next year Netflix started casting um, African film, and like that's the person you don't want to be in competition with, right? Uh, so Netflix kind of you know um, usurped whatever plans that AfroStream was having to be that only place that you can receive certain African cinema or television shows. So it was kind of, a, it was very ambitious, um, but it was kind of like Netflix now is this media giant or streaming giant. Uh, obviously it was very hard for them to compete with them, so that made it difficult. I think AfroStream still exists, but it's like a kind of more of a, if you know, you know, there are great things that you can watch there. But I think streaming services have that potential, you know, Netflix has done some like a lot of African series now, sitting on di- Diaspora, they, they do some work there. Um, I've enjoyed some of their African produced shows, like, uh, um, Queen Sona was a really good show, uh, love, loved that show, I think it was like the first show, like, a uh, Netflix show in Africa, like, well, in, in South Africa specifically. It was an action genre too. Yeah, loved it, um, African women starring in it, and, um, you know, a lot of other shows, uh, Kings of Joburg, one really good one as well. Uh, so the potential is there, and the ability is there, um, but it's mostly a matter of the care, so it goes into a matter of, um us as audiences and viewers you know pressing them for this more i think we're in a position now especially with everything going wrong along the lines of dei diversity and inclusion we have the ability now to pressure them more for these things because everyone is trying to you know you have like the uh, the strong black lead that's like their kind of their social media thing they have it for like every um um underrepresented minority now they have a kind of a version of, of strong black lead right um we're in a space now where we can push for that and i think that um the way African countries now are kind of uh, definitely having more technologies and broadband access, we're seeing more productions come out of there now. So I, th- I want to say it'll be for the better, but as of now it's kind of only Netflix has that power, so it's, it's, it's still centralized. and I think any media that's centralized in one service is, is not good, because um, that's how you get a monopoly over it. And that's why like you know, the FCC exists to like prevent monopolies. No one should be in control of too much media because that's a huge political power. Uh, so it's kind of scary when you think about how much control Netflix has as a, as a streaming power, but they have the ability to. I think it's up to us to kind of continue to further push the diaspora. Like I myself, you know, I'm working on a class right now about Caribbean film, television, and cinema um, because we don't talk about that in, in diasporas mainly. Mainly in courses like that are on the East Coast, where most Caribbean immigrants are and stuff. But me, you know, as this kind of um, child of a Caribbean immigrant, you know, and wanting to learn more about the culture of the Caribbean, you know, the movement through like, you know, Indian folks in the Caribbean, or, or you know, Southeast Asian folks in the Caribbean, African folks in the Caribbean, you know, this um, these whole different cultures mixing together. I love that aspect of the history along aligning with the media. So uh, in order to, you know, do that, we have to do a lot of research and kind of bring forth those stories as, as important to understand the diaspora as a whole. And I think that uh, they need to do more to do that. And it comes from like, you know, those folks who are kind of gonna make that media and present it to them. Yeah. Other
1: questions on from our online group and from our in-person audience. Uh,
4: so there's a conversation that's been going on for like the past couple of years now that uh, is basically surrounding black trauma in media. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, you know, we'll get a lot of television shows and films that kind of center around like, the more negative aspects of our history and our culture instead of the more positive, you know, lighthearted stuff that you would get in something like different worlds and family matters and all this Mm -hmm. other stuff. So what is kind of your take on, you know, black trauma in our media and if it's, you know, staying, if it's going Mm -hmm.
2: just kind of how you view the whole situation? Well, I'm gonna throw a question back at you. How would you you define like a negative image?
4: I guess it would, so let's say you get a show that is based on slavery. Okay. like the underground, I think it was, like or, uh, was called. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I haven't seen the whole thing, so I can't speak on it. Yeah, yeah. But um, just something that would focus on like, you know, something like slavery instead of, you know, a more modern and, you know, something that isn't so traumatic or triggering to
2: Okay, yeah, I get that. Um, so and I'm glad you, you, I asked that question because, you know, I think a lot of folks, when they say positive portrayal, negative portrayal, I try not to say those terms because um, what can be positive to me may be negative to someone else, right? And I think it's also, it's, it's I, I, sometimes subjective, especially, like, I'll try not to use the word stereotype as much because I realize, especially in academia, they use the word so much where it's kind of like, what does that even mean, right? And we think of stereotypes, right? Like, you know, and I think we, we may see a certain stereotypes, uh, even contemporary black stereotypes, where we're like, well, actually, I do know someone that is like that. You know what I mean? Like, where it's, like, not necessarily, like, fake or made up. So a stereotype, it has a negative connotation, though. So I think that I want to, I always like push folks to always push forward, past those words because um, think of deeper in them, like, you know, why is it negative to you? Why do you mean that's negative? Let's th- think deeper about this, this idea of a stereotype. But when you talk about trauma, I think um, being a black in Ameri- being black in America, um, specifically from or like, you know, you are American, uh, it's hard to imagine, you know, uh, a a trauma you know, depiction of what our life looks like, even if it is a matter of uh, you know, a, a contemporary look and story t- the, like, you know, it's about there are there are times of trauma, even in the best of times, when you talk about like in a different world or other shows like that, there are episodes that are traumatic about because they're about the black experience, you know, like uh, an episode, I think, where you know um, one of the characters is like kind of called like an Aunt Jemima figure or like a mammy figure, right? I think the episode is called something about the mammy, right? Um, and um, being American black person or becoming black in America, or you know, you can be an immigrant and you know, you may not, uh, you may be like you know from a, a different country, African country, et cetera, uh, But largely, you're going to be seen as black, right? So being black in America, particularly often aligns one with, you know, uh, issues because you think about how America was built and what it was built on. A lot of it was built on this trauma, but show, the films and shows like, you know, like the TV show, uh, uh, Them, right, for instance, right? And that was one where I think it, this idea of like a trauma porn that folks are kind of into now. And I, I honestly don't, largely don't think that's for us black people, really. I think it's for mm-hmm. other folks, largely. I think we watch it because we always wanna see ourselves on TV, so we, we, we're gonna watch it. But I think the trauma is to kind of inform other folks, I mean like kind of white, white liberal folks or other conservative folks, like kind of of our traumatic past that they may not believe as true. And so like let's see this trauma and like hopefully that can kind of get them ideas of like things we live through every day. So I necessarily don't see those things for us. I think that I see those for like the greater mass of folks who don't know our stories. Like we don't we know that, we know this stuff. We don't need to know that or see it again, right? And I think um, when it comes to shows, films and shows about slavery, kind of same thing, you know. Um, it was that kind of point of realizing that we built this country. We were part of the, ba- the building blocks and this is how we live in America today. You think of like so like roots that kind of, you know, um, sparked this idea of 1977, sparked this idea of, you know, what blackness uh, is in America now by Alex Haley's, like, you know, genealogy of his, you know, um, uh, past ancestors in slavery and how and where he is now. That was kind of America's first real look at how slavery built America, right? And it's supposed to be an eight week show ABC was so afraid that it wouldn't be watched, they squeezed it into eight days, right, straight rather than eight weeks because they were afraid. They had shows like they had a show called like the Holocaust miniseries that lasted the entire that was like when Meryl Streep started. Mm-hmm. That lasted the entire, you know, um, season. Mm-hmm. But they said Roots were kind of were worried, so we have this over eight days. I think Roots was nominated for like 30 plus Emmys that year, because how good it was, because it was the first time America had to reflect on its past, right? So we know the past already. But I think in moments like these, where we think about, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, you know, we think about police brutality, it goes a lot to, like, continuously reminding folks of our of, of black Americans' past and what they had to go through. That really isn't for us, you know, it's for other folks to remind them, yeah, um, this is a traumatic past we had to go through and live through every day. So, unfortunately, I don't see the black trauma stopping, but I see that... Uh, uh, I see an important balance that's coming, right? Um, especially in the fields of like Afrofuturism. You know, think of like you know worlds beyond, like what, what blackness can be, um, what blackness can look like, or thinking of alternate alternative histories of blackness. We're seeing a lot of that as well, too, in the supernatural as well, which I love to see because it's about. Um, reimagining your own blackness, what a blackness looks like to you through a supernatural or through like, if this didn't happen, what blackness would be? Like we think of like this idea of Wakanda, right? This like kind of, if we had a nation that was never, you know, um, quote, unquote, colonized, right? What, what possibility can we be? Like what heights can we be? So things like that are important moving forward, you know? And, and, and um, you know, shows that are often canceled, right? Like Lovecraft Country, for instance, right? Beautiful show. So much potential, this kind of black, kind of horror, kind of sci-fi thing, like things we don't see ourselves usually in, this kind of escapist narratives that are important to see blackness in these ways, but still harking back to black history, they remind you. So you can do both. I think what, there are some traumatic points of, of, of Lovecraft Country for sure that made me tear up and everything. But when you balance it with you know um, po- black possibility and um, black freedom and feeling like you know you know you're not in a fixed place, I think that's where we see progress coming, right? But when it's strictly trauma being thrown at you and baited, it's not necessarily for us. Um, it's for folks who feel as though, like, you know, who may have forgotten the trauma that we experienced. And unfortunately, those are the folks who usually run media. So those are the shows that get greenlit. Yeah. I love Lovecraft Country. Oh, amazing show. And
1: I cried when yeah. they said they weren't renewing weren't mm-hmm. it. Uh, Absolutely. So. Parting that deep breath over the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Others. Not seeing it. Oh, please go ahead.
3: So a lot of the I would say actors kind of seem repeat like Viola Davis and mm-hmm. Daya, um, Denzel kind of in the same like not tropes. Like I love to see them in different aspects of them. But how do you see like the future Hollywood embracing different roles, um, or, like younger generation or even different mm-hmm. people? Like, who's gonna be able to <laughs> grab the torch from yeah. these trailblazers?
2: You no, know, we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Um, this idea that there's always been like, um, earlier, it looked like one black person or one black woman. You know, it was like a Ozzie Davis and Ruby D at one point, or, you know, it was like one black person, one black woman, right? And like, uh, it was Sidney Poitier for like 60s and 70s. It was, you know, um, uh, Mr. Cosby for a minute. It was, you know, um, Eddie Murphy. It was Denzel. And at that point, Eddie ran the 80s, right? Like, he was super, star. he's what, you know, Kevin Hart thinks he is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, Kevin Hart obviously made more money and everything, but like, as far as like, you know, think of comedy, the pure, the rawness that came out of him. And you know, I, I love a black man making money, I love the work they're doing, but when you think about like kind of the essence of kind of where they came from and the roots of their comedy, it's much different, right? So, but there's always kind of this, that one person that does this stuff right now. And I was actually saying earlier, like, we're looking at specifically black men, right? Uh, there's not that just one anymore, but there's like six, right? And like, we can name all of them, right? You know, like all three uh, bros from, you know, uh, Brian Tyree, Henry, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, D- uh, Donald Glover, you know, all the all bros from Atlanta, which is why we haven't had a season in two years because they're all too damn busy, all right? Uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, you know, um, rest in peace Chadwick Boseman, was one of these up-and-comers, right? He was that person, I was gonna be like that, that helm for sure. And of course, you know, Michael B. Jordan, you know, um, so you have these group of folks, right? And you think of, like, black women, it's different, right? You know, you have Viola Davis playing everybody. She has, She's playing uh, Michelle Obama coming up. That's going to be dope, you know, and, and Viola could do no wrong, you know? Uh, but, you know, there needs to be an array of individuals because there are many folks out there who are doing the work. Um, so we're having a, a lot of folks come up in, in, the, in the ranks, largely through, like, streaming shows and stuff, too. But when it comes to films, you know, you have, like, a like the Tessa Thompson's, other young folks kind of, like, kind of get this realm up, but I think... Black women are, you know, uh, definitely needs to be a more concerted effort on getting more black women's faces out there as well. But the fact that, you know, if asked on, like, who a black lead may be, Mahershala Ali, I add him to that list too. But I can name all, all of them, right? <laughs> that's, that's that's the problem. I think in and of itself, it's, um, there are progress. The fact that it's not just one anymore. But I shouldn't be able to name all of them because if I ask, if I'm asked about a white actor, I can go on and on and on. It's not a discussion. You not you, you kind of don't know who's going to be next. But for black actors, we know who that vanguard of folks is. Who that kind of clique uh, of black actors are. You know, I didn't even mention Daniel Kalua, You know. Um, uh, yeah, David Ariola, like all these, you know, black British actors as well, too. Um, Idris Elba, you know, old boy who plays in um, um, Damson Idris, who plays in um, Snowfall. Snowfall, right? You know, so many black men show, but again, that makes it also clear to how many, um, how less of black women-led vehicles are there, you know? There's no more scandal, there's no more how to deal with murder, where the black women-led vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. No more insecure now, too. That's still, that's still you know, ending on a great note, had, you know, because, you know, sometimes shows can go on too long, as we all know, but that makes it clear, too, the lack of black women-led vehicles there are as well. So uh, these companies, especially streaming, they have the ability to make that possible, um, but I want to see it happen more so in the feature space, right? Uh, when we look at, you know, uh, we look at the Academy Awards, when we look at big award shows. And mind you, I hate the award rhetoric because so many great stuff doesn't make awards, and we all know it's all political who these awards are, but I would like to see a face of, like, black female actresses, uh, best, best actresses, I would like to see five out of six be black. That would be amazing to see, right? In whatever world that may possibly be. <laughs> but I think that um, it's moving in a direction specifically for black men because that's how this, you know, patriarchal system works. You know, black men first and then black women and probably black queer people. Well, me, black gay men first, then black uh, queer people. And, you know, and so this way it moves... It's a very patriarchal system. It's moving slowly but surely. But I think that it just fully makes clear the lack of Black women vehicles. We need more because again, we can name all these folks, and which is beautiful. But I want there to be a time where there's an array of folks. My like, damn, who was that? She's dope, you know. Um, but I want to see her next, right? Um, so yeah, I, I, the potential's there. It's just a matter of you know they're probably like, y'all like Viola Davis, so we're we gonna throw her on on another one, right? Um, which no one's gonna complain about, of course, but. We need to make conservative efforts uh, to show again, the array of what we look like as a people and how we act. And um, we're not fixed in certain identities and certain people don't represent all of us. And I think they're sometimes throwing Viola that, uh, that image, like, look, you the black woman, so be all of us, <laughs> right? Yeah. Any other questions?
3: I have a question. Go for it. Yeah. So. The Wire showed a harsh but
4: real look into the reality of inner city Baltimore um, at the underfunded
1: schools and stories of Michael, Randy, Naaman, and Dookie, the Corn Boys. Um, So what are your thoughts on the portrayal of that
3: very real aspect of black existence in America, Mm
4: -hmm.
1: um,
3: how they're handled and the need
1: of those stories to be told?
2: Man, I love that show. So I'm glad you mentioned, like, that's the shirt I'm wearing. You know, it's uh, the Love the Wire. I love the show. This is probably my favorite season. I believe it's season four. Like, because they do, like, you know, um, you know, the police department. They do, like, the docs, the education system, we politics. Like the didn't like the I didn't like the docs at all. So season I'm two was true. Sure, yeah, know, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's where they got away from us. So th- three brought us back, right? And then uh, season four about, like, you know, journalism and media, print media. Um, this season, for sure, uh hurts to watch, off how it ended, you know um, beautiful but but very real in that aspect and but extremely important these shows and I think this uh, this show is one important because again, um, it's from a white show owner David Simon, but his co-writer of, of the show uh, David Mills, a black man um, from Baltimore area. Um, you know, this kind of shows the importance of having a black writer in the room, a black consistent staff writer, because all of the show wasn't from a, particularly from like a black producer's perspective, having that consistent writer in the room, who also worked on like Treme and other shows that David Simon, like made it clear like the the uh, black Baltimore that you're going to get in the show, right, you know, someone who could reflect on that. And a show like The Wire, I think, in a very important way, um, really talked about how the city breaks down, you know, um, looking at a larger city, right, and how it breaks down, uh it's politics through like, you know, um, the mayoral office, you know, how that breaks down to education system, to the police, to like the the, you know, um even the worker, although I hate that season, is important to see how how the money rolls in a city, right? The the uh, the legal workings of it. Um, and which what's cared about and how really how police are involved in all these aspects too, especially a port city. Those are the cities where the most corruption happens because that's a huge money maker. Um, a show like this and the fate of these individuals um it's kind of a product of the environment thing that's kind of hurtful to see, but it was like so real. So like if if it ended in a way, it was like a kind of happy-go-lucky. They all go off to college or something. It, it would, of course, it would be beautiful to see, but the realism would, would, would drift off there, right? Talking about the circumstances and how, like you know, one ended. Up, I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's been a while since the wire came on. <laughs> but to watch it, everybody, I think how one of them, I won't say who, but how one of them, like you know, ends up in foster in the system, right? How one of them, you know, ends up from. The actually from the family that deals the drugs, that that's one ended up being saved in a sense, going to the private schools and all that. One ends up on the run, and then one ends up, you know, um, his only community was within with drug addicts, so he becomes a drug addict. And this idea that your community, really, like where you feel comfortable at, that was the, the only space for him, right? And it just hurts to see, but it's it's the fate of so many people in a community like that. Um, some young black boys, and for this to be the state, it, it was heart hurtful to see. You know, as a black man, like myself, who went through foster care, who like you know had a parent who dealt with you know um, drug abuse, all these things that you know I felt it a lot, and I think that it was important to show these stories because you know it showed the real grittiness of what a city can do, and how the city's every working part is a character, education system is a character in the city, the police, they all make up the experience of this kind of microcosm of what's happening to the the kids in that city, right? And they're lacking going to school, how they have to survive, and you know you feel bad for them because you know they're selling drugs and stuff. You may see them and like, okay, they're drug dealers, but look at their surroundings. One kid, his dad was a, was one of the kingpins in this large organization, so of course he's going to do want to do drug, drug dealer too, right? Um, one kid is is you know he's a, lives in extreme poverty. His mother steals from him when he has money. Um, he has to shower at school, so he's going to be a part of his environment. He's going to latch on to whatever ways he can get money. Right, so I think shows like this are important because they really tap into this idea that, uh, you know, a lot of shows and a lot of news will say like, you know, poverty is the fault of that person. You know, like, like my homelessness in Austin. You think all this stuff like, you know, uh, knowing their stories and knowing what came of these things is what's so important. So I teach my students and looking at media, let's talk about the backstory. What made this person who they are? You know, uh, watch we watch Boys in the Hood. Talk about Doughboy character who played by Ice Cube. Mm What made him this you know, tough gangster is because he's always trying to protect his brother and get the approval of his mother the entire film. He's not a bad guy whatsoever. He wants to protect his brother because but his mom also treats his brother better than him. So he's always trying to, trying to always be um, in his mother's eyes is cared about. So he always was seeking love and affection and validation. So these things often, um, especially for young black men, uh, young black children in general, um, this idea of this need of uh, wanting to feel belonging and uh, feel community that's largely why they come together. And the fate of them often is dependent on the community and what happens. So these four kind of like drift off into different spaces of life where the one who was born into the worst, well, financially the best, but kind of the worst situation, born into a drug family, ends up being the one who's like the most well off in the end because he like, you know, found someone that gave him a break or cared about him. And, you know, you realize that that's the fate of a lot of individuals and stories that haven't ever been told before. So that's what what's important to always cater to the stories that aren't told. Yeah, perfect.
1: Others? Other questions? Yes? Uh,
4: What are some type of, like, shows or, I guess we're talking about television, so what are some type of, you know, black uh, shows or stories, parts of the culture that you would like to be uh, explored in the future? Because I feel like everybody kind of has their ideal show of, like, what they would want to see. Yeah. So what kind of stuff would you want to see? Yeah.
2: Um, someone going to take my idea and write it and, w- and win awards <laughs> off of it. But no, um, you know I always share information. So for me, I've always wanted to, in a style of uh, like you know, I got caught into like the uh, you know the like the Shondaland early stuff, like Grey's. You know, it's like what's the, season eighteen now. Right now, I just want to see how it ends. I'm like I've just, spent I eighteen years <laughs> watching this show. Oh, I just need just to see how it, it ends, right? Um, but like, I got into shows like that to talk about you know like um. The personal lives of folks in certain jobs. I think. then I think of like a sh- show like Grey's Anatomy. They think a comedy like Scrubs, both about kind of black. Oh, excuse me, both about surgeons or life of like living as surgeons, but like comedy versus drama, right? So I've always been interested in shows like that. But then I think of like you know, a show that really came out that kind of was was kind of an idea I always had was uh, that show um, The Chair, that came out on Netflix, right? Um, I love Sandra Oh, great actress. Um, but I always wanted to talk about this idea of like you know. Um, how uh, maybe a comedy around kind of like you know black faculty at like a predominantly white institution, right? A comedy around that, like you know you have the the black person in the sciences or the black person who like does the romantic languages, and but they're always, and they're like you know that's part of their character, right? Them being a romantic languages professor is part of like their smooth character, like funny things like that. I always think about stuff like that, right? Like and how you know the, the FM person is like the you know he only wears black owned stuff, things like that is always funny to me. Like I always think of like stories of like um, folks in these uh, professions that we don't really see their true story of them about you know um, you know what is it that, that that black professor went through or what is it that you know um, kind of made them go into the field of academia specifically um, but really I just like seeing black art in many different ways so like other than that I love to see you know uh, things are are talking more about, you know, uh, black folks in fashion and style or, you know, like uh, black designers and stuff too. I love shows like, you know, a lot of the um, creative shows that talk about kind of the, the design process. Like, you know, I look at uh, a service like Complex, like right? that's Like the, uh, sneaker shopping and stuff like that. I love stuff like that because they're talking to people about, like, you know, shopping for sneakers and talking about the history and stuff. And then they're all talking about, like, you know, this idea of sneakers and, like, how it was a part of culture for them. And for myself too, when I think of, like, you know, when I like wear clothes and think, I think about like, you know like you know who made this like the fashion and like especially like you know black culture and how it that I think that's so why in my black popular culture ca- class, I do a whole week on like black fashion and like um, what comes from that right uh, you know what made them design a shirt this way you know what are they saying with the clothing you know uh, what is Larger saying about kind of the history they tapped into, so things like that I love hearing stories about that it doesn't need to be a TV show it could be like a you know a YouTube series like that. And I love media actually that isn't structured by the constraints of television or, or, or film. I love this kind of homegrown media that comes from like a Vimeo or a YouTube series like where you can kind of um, not necessarily do what you want, but you kind of, it's like made for, for you and by you that you can kind of like lower budgets, like stuff that really kind of in front of a camera, talking about your livelihood. So I really enjoy like, you know, a lot of random YouTube shows about like, or channels about like, you know, um, folks experiencing new cities stuff like that too like especially black folks experiencing new cities like how to be black i ran a couple of them, like how to, be, how to like how to uh, live a black austin experience like stuff like that randomly right and that's the thing about beautiful about media especially the openness of like a youtube in general is because the kind of freedom that opens you to different things right um and you can kind of make a show out of anything um or what kind of taps ta- what taps into your fancy um about style livelihood culture and whatever things that kind of around those things I'm always really interested in too but lately it's been uh, a mix of kind of like fashion and hip hop culture have been my um, interests as of late yeah All right We got it. Oh go ahead Ken. and
1: So
3: how would you kind of I guess, inspire you, like your students or anyone who wants to like have an idea and just like produce it without like worrying about, oh, do I have, like, enough expertise for this? Is my story, Mm -hmm. like, enough money for this? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you kind of support telling your own story?
2: Yeah, I think the expertise thing, I think first is, like, you know, um, expertise, like, you can, um, research can be done by anyone, you know what I mean? Like, um, find resources, I think. Um, And also, when you look at, when you watch, so, if you're thinking about some, creating something, you know, find things that are kind of similar to what you want to create, but obviously you're the difference, right? What about you is different? Why would they come to you? I think that's an important thing, right? Um, of all the, I just talk about fashion, so I'm, so I'm bring that up again. Of all like the fashion sites, right? What about your site is different? Uh, you know, maybe you focus specifically on, you know, uh, retro Jordans, right? I'm just throwing something randomly out there, but your sp- specificity is going to be what's most important, right? Why would people come to watch your? show, channel, whatever it may be. And as far as like, you know, expertise, it goes to, you know, consuming these things. You know, when I, I'm a media studies professor, but like I study black sitcoms specifically, but I have to watch all sitcoms or all television in general, because I have to talk about how sitcoms are constructed as a whole and then how we see it as black sitcoms specifically, right? So it's about being a kind of a master of your craft. You have to really put yourself into there. So really look at things that may not be exactly what you want to do, but are like, you know, tangential to what you want to do, right, They're are connected close enough that you can see, like, all right, cool, now I'm to be more specific to what I want to do. Start with the overarching themes of what you like, uh, what things may touch that, and then from there you can find specifically what's for you. That's how you can gain kind of like a visual expertise when watching things. But also, you know, um, I, being in a, a visual field, um, but I'm also on the study side, so I have to write and read. Um, i much rather watch things, uh, but I have to read from my job and from my writing because I have to know what has written about, been written about already because that informs how my work's going to be different, right? They talk about the show already. Many people talk about the shows. that I talk about my writing, but how I talk about the show is differently. What am I taking f- from these shows differently as well? Um, but also giving respect to those who came before you in that way too, like talking against them, finding an argument, right? So reading these things is going to be important too, so reading, watching. And um, also, really, um, people you know are going to be, like, the harshest critics, so I think also be, you know, be open to showing them your things. Like, if, it's, if you're creating a new media, uh, a new channel, a new show, whatever, or writing something, show them, get their perspective on it. And I think the best thing is if what you're doing doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't, like, do what you do, then it, then it needs to be worked on. So, like, myself, like, if I'm writing about history of, like. Black TV, right? If I'm talking to a friend of mine who does who works in the natural sciences, right? If they're reading my work and they don't really understand it, then I need, to be, I need to do better in my writing because I need to make it be able to be clear. It should never be just for folks in my field to understand. And I think that's kind of like one of the things in academia that happens so much time. Like they use words, they use terms um, that are only people in academia can understand. And I think the best things are, uh, are uh, what's being able to be received outside of folks who just already understand what you're doing. Right. So be sure to always kind of share your work with folks who um, aren't connected to your, like, you know, um, interest at all. And I think if they can find use or value in it, I think that's a good step as well. Yeah, no problem. Well, we're
1: going to go ahead and uh, close our session this evening. We want to thank everybody uh, in our audience and those of you online uh, who are tuning in. We want to thank Dr. Sebro for for all you're doing. You can give him a round of applause. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us and educating us and entertaining and teaching us uh, on this evening. Uh, For those of you who are tuning in online and those of you here, please make sure that you check in just so we can track and see who all was with us on today. So you got those QR codes down here at the front and in the back. Uh, Hopefully in the chat, uh, you all received the uh, QR code, not the QR code, but the uh, Qualtrics link, just so we can know uh, who tuned in with us this evening and so that we can follow up with you, uh, get some feedback and thoughts. Uh, I think we're going to do this again. Uh, this is our hey, very first time doing yeah. this live and in person. We normally only do the audio version of this, this is podcast. Beautiful. This so is beautiful. I think we're going to do it again in person. And uh, uh, Dr. Sebo really enjoyed uh, talking with you. We definitely got to have you back for another conversation. I, it. I, I promise it. it won't be another year um, <laughs> before we do that again. But uh, we got two other uh, well, three really uh, happening. In the life of our campus this week for Black History Month. Tomorrow, we have a Black History Month uh, poetry reading and writing workshop that's gonna take place from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. over in the Littlefield Patio Cafe. Uh, and it's gonna feature uh, a local artist, her name is Kamari Hawkins, and she's gonna uh, be giving away some of her poetry books as well as some of her writing journals. And we're gonna learn how to write poetry, we're gonna learn how to create together. And so that's gonna be an exciting time. Uh, and then on Wednesday, we're gonna do uh, an evening with Dr. Moore. We're we're going to have a discussion about his new book, Teaching Black History to White People. Uh, we're going to have free food and dinner at that event. And there's dinner tomorrow at tomorrow night's event. And then on Thursday, oh, and the event with Dr. Moore is going to be in the San Jacinto uh, Hall multi-purpose room. So make sure you come to that. Five o'clock p.m. on Tuesday. Mm, yeah.
0: Tuesday. Yep. T- no, no, no. Today, what's the Tuesday
1: is Littlefield Patio. is <laughs> why I should have wrote it down. <laughs> Tuesday, uh, Littlefield Patio Cafe for the Poetry Reading and Writing Workshop. Wednesday. 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the Santa Jacinto Hall multipurpose room. That's the evening with Dr. Moore. And then on Thursday at our Jester uh, J2 dining location Ann and in solving, we're doing the diaspora dinners. And so I- I'm not going to give away the menu, but I'm telling you, if you have not eaten in the dining halls all year, Thursday would be the day I would go because I've seen the menu, and let's just say, think about all your favorite southern dishes and all of your international Mediterranean, um, goodness gracious, (laughs) anything, think of the diaspora. And think of the food associated with it. Africa, uh, Louisiana, North Carolina, Texas, all of that. Y'all, it's, it's, it's gonna be incredible. So come eat, come hang out with us. Uh, and you know, come find me. I'll make sure, if you don't have a meal plan, come find me, we'll figure it out. We'll get you in there. But I know our dining team would definitely appreciate seeing you all and getting your feedback uh, on Thursday's uh, dinner meal. That's from five to seven, or five to closing actually, uh, as well in Ken Salving and uh, J2. So wanna thank you all for coming out. Thank you to the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Studio for hosting us and having us in here as always. We want to thank our media and marketing team from Housing and Dining and every one of you who came to hang out with us on today. And my co-host, as always, wonderful. Make sure you get the camera shot. You know, don't don't close without showing that. To know, so, all right? I'll hear about it afterwards. But if uh, you want to give them the final words.
0: No, thanks for coming. We're so excited for our next episode. Um, we'll talk to you soon. Um, make sure you get connected with Dr. Sebro. Check out his class and course list for next semester if you're interested in that and having these conversations. So check your next episode.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. To catch the next installment, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.
3: This podcast was recorded and edited in collaboration with the LAITS Development Studios Audio Department. More information can be found at liberalarts.utexas.edu slash LAITS. The intro song was composed by Ian Herrera, and you can find his work at ianherrera.com. The outro song was composed by Noah Keller, and you can find more of his work at noahdkeller.com.
1: We'll see you next time. Texas Podcast Network is brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. Podcasts are produced by faculty members and staffers at UT Austin who work with university communications to craft content that adheres to journalistic best practices. The University of Texas at Austin offers these podcasts at no charge. Podcasts appearing on the network and this Web page represent the views of the hosts, not of the University of Texas at Austin.